everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well. The Lunar New Year came and went without too much trouble, and teaching started back up at my university, so I'm back to doing in-class teaching. Over the break, I caught up with some work, cooked a bit, and read some books. I was able to finish Raven Leilani's Luster and Charles Yu's Interior Chinatown. Both were a good break from some of the more dense art theory stuff I sometimes put myself through. I recommend you check both of them out. Anyway, for this episode, I am interviewing Jen Liu, an artist working in video, painting, biomaterial, sculpture, and performance on the topics of national identity, labor economy, and the reinterpretation of archival artifacts. Jen got a BA in creative writing from Oberlin College and an MFA from the California Institute of the Arts. She has attended residencies such as Diantelier, Academy Schloss Solitude, Pioneer Works, and many others. Jen has also exhibited in venues like the Whitney Museum, the New Museum, and the 2014 Shanghai Biennial. Her past awards include a Guggenheim Fellowship, a LACMA Art and Technology Award, and a Creative Capital Grant. In our discussion, we chat about Jen's path from a writer to an artist, living and working in Europe, and how she views storytelling in the framework of time-based media. Jen thought we sounded like two cute chipmunks, which I take as a compliment. In any case, stay safe, stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy this. I don't know. I, yeah. I, it seems fine. <laughs> it's an adjunct of New York City. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's an awful lot of people being like really irresponsible, but yeah, um, but it's still New York. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So there are people without masks on running around with AK-47. You know, it's not, yeah. not that bad. Um, and my parents are still living there in Mount Sinai. So they uh, have only started in the last few weeks to go outside and uh, do their outdoor sports because uh-huh. now they're retired uh, and that's what they live for. So uh, everything's kind of slowly moving into a not old normal, but new normal. Yeah. And, and what did your parents do before they retired? Uh, my dad was R&D for lasers. Okay. In private industry. Uh, so that uh, lots of like cell phone, early cell phone technology kind of and industrial uh, machinery kind of things. And then my mom was a computer programmer. Her last job, she only had a couple of jobs and they were, she held them for a really long time. Uh, so the last one was at SUNY Stony Brook, which is both of their alma maters. But for the longest time, she worked at Brookhaven Lab, which is the big Cold War um, military uh, research facility in Brookhaven, right. New York, in Brookhaven, um, which I believe they have a super, super collider now out really? there. They do? I think so. They might do because otherwise it's not being really, the campus isn't being really used the way it was originally intended in the 50s, 60s through to the early 90s, which was as a um, major um, military research facility. So I I didn't, that part I didn't know. So I think it's really interesting how it 
seems to influence your work that you have been doing. But before you go there, I was curious. Yeah, so then you you ended up, I know you noticed you went to study creative writing in Oberlin. I did. And so at that point, were was arts in your life? Did you do drawing and other kinds of artistic activity? Oh, or? so I was a double major. Uh, I went there with a experience, I guess, in watercolor. Oh, not watercolor. Um, oil paint and charcoal. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, I also wrote. And there were so many schools that had pretty good art programs. I didn't want to go to an art school. But almost none of them, at least at that period of time, had proper writing programs for undergrads. So that's why I ended up going there, because it was the only one. Right. Honestly, um, with a full framework for study. And um, lo and behold, after all of that, don't even write anymore. <laughs> but it was a wonderful experience. And um, and the art studies there were okay. They were really okay. Yeah. And then how did you end up deciding to make the switch? I know you you ended up going to uh, CalArts for your MFA shortly after. So I was curious what that transition was like. Sure. It was actually quite practical. I, I really still loved writing particularly poetry on prose kind of things but at some point pretty soon after college I was trying to imagine I knew that it was not really feasible to pursue both particularly as a kind of public practice um, mm-hmm. in which I engage with particular communities it would just be really hard um, and of course um, you know as a kind of Asian American you're very aware of the kind of limitations that face you in any given uh, field or particularly cultural production field. So, so I was like, okay, I need to pick one. It's just not going to be feasible to do both, to sustain both at an equal level. And then it just came down to practicalities. Actually, I was trying to imagine what it would be like to build a life around writing. And that was something um, true or mistaken or some place in between the two of them. I didn't identify it as a practice that was more solitary. And I wasn't really interested in that. Um, Mm -hmm. Particularly if I was just like, kind of, you know, not, I hadn't made it exactly to the top of the pops. I would just be like writing all alone. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Or um, I could see that very well being a possibility. Right. Um, And then uh, with the way that people, um, you know, how most writers, no matter how successful they mostly do teach, particularly poets and, uh, you know, imagining going into the countryside and teaching all by myself. Isn't that what uh, you're doing now? <laughs> it, which is exactly what I do now. <laughs> um, and, but I, I think there were certain other conditions too. Um, I think that the sense of isolation wasn't necessarily just a geographic uh, mm. isolation or a kind of process-oriented isolation, but also that even though uh, Oberlin has always been really good in terms of what we now call, I guess, like a kind of like broad-based BIPOC um, representation in faculty as well as students, Mm -hmm. the writing department was a little white um, uh, to a lot, even Mm -hmm. though there were, as you can imagine, uh, in the 90s that has extended to now, there were visiting faculty. Yeah that point in time who were not white so so I was like mm, I don't know and the lovely thing about being that young is every single experience seems like it it's the main rule for what uh-huh. will happen afterwards which of course you learn it's not the case but at Oberlin I had um I was working really closely in the art department 
with Latinx and Black faculty. Um, and they were full faculty. Imagine that. Yeah. In the studio art department. Um, and it just seemed more like the kind of place I would want to be, more the kind of world I would want to be in. And that had a kind of like oh, a very strong framework for social engagement, regular social engagement that I really liked. Hmm. So, but that's not to say also, I mean, it, also within art, I was like, oh, I can use all these different materials. If I went with that, I can still kind of do whatever I want. <laughs> I was going to say, most of your, your videos still have a ton of writing in it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so, and it was writing, I was like, oh, uh, that's really hard to kind of like broaden out. The word is the word, you know. <laughs> So all those things came together as right or wrong uh, decisions I made as a 22, 23-year-old. But yeah, so that was that was the kind of thinking process behind that. And then did you, you took some time off between your BFA and MFA? What did you do? Mm, I took a year off, which means, as you know, it's actually more like six months yeah, off. Yeah, Because <laughs> then you're applying and a lot. No, I went to grad school. Right. I, I, I wanted to go. I, I got out of school. I didn't know exactly that I wanted to go to grad school. But my first job um, out of college was on Wall Street as a tech writer with like suits <laughs> and like literally <laughs> on Broad Street. So not technically Wall Street, but yeah, yeah. like half a block away mm -hmm. from, you know, the um, New York Stock Exchange. Right. And I was just like, and it was a fascinating job. But I was just like, I hate, I can't do this. <laughs> you know, I mean, how, how long do I have to keep on doing this? I'd rather like to be in a studio and make work and all these kind of things instead of put on a suit and, right. you know, try to write these, all this ad copy and tech copy for custom trading systems yeah. for Merrill Lynch. Like, that's not what I yeah. want to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so that's what happened. And what was the work that you were doing then? Were you doing already video and, and sculpture? Were you painting? I was doing some very pretentious 90s things. <laughs> Performance? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. Good, good, thank goodness. Not too, I've never gotten too far into performance, gosh. But um, uh, what was I doing? I didn't get up to too much after school. I just did a little bit of stuff. You know, the, you're supposed to do a little bit to pad out your yeah. Um, yeah. Grad yeah. School. So I can't say too much uh, in terms of my commitment to what mm. it is that mm. I did after school. But um, at that point, I was doing large scale installation okay. um, with um, some performative aspects, some collaborative pieces, particularly with fellow um, Asian and Asian American female friends. And um, yeah, lots of engaged with sculptural material, but like basic stuff, you know, like yeah. paper, things like that. Yeah. And uh, some video as well. Yeah. And I was like playing a little bit with the internet. There wasn't too much going on back then. Mm -hmm. um, so it was an interesting space to kind of muck around in. Yeah. Um, because there, it was very constrained in terms of possibilities, technically, which was fun, actually. And then, uh, how was CalArts? It was good. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Surely you've had an interview with somebody who's all, it was like, oh, that's the level of the responses. 
I don't think I've ever interviewed anyone from CalArts. I've heard mixed stuff. Yeah. CalArts? No, CalArts was good. Uh, I think that I went to grad school too early. I think I was really mm. tired. Um, I don't think that I, oh yeah, I wasn't, especially when you do large scale installation, I was just physically tired. Yeah. Yeah. I took four years between undergrad and grad. I was not so smart, unfortunately, but it was, it was a wonderful learning experience. I, um, it was a great cohort. Um, it was an interesting cohort, definitely really different. I didn't go to art school before that. Yeah. It was a very different kind of atmosphere from Oberlin, of course, um, while in some ways a kind of base of political, um, let's say a base of political consciousness was present there as with Oberlin, which was really important to me actually to be in a place that sustained that in whatever ways it claimed to. And while I was there, um, I met some amazing people, studied with some amazing people. And it really, it set the terms of engagement. Yeah. Um, And that was definitely a place uh, because I'd come from such a small program before that, I I don't think that I had encountered such a wide range mm. of not only mediums, but a kind of commitment to different philosophies about what art should be about, how it operates with audiences, what in fact are audiences. Um, I think that that was really eye-opening. And uh, that was when I realized that how many different art worlds could be operating in the same city populated by entirely different people. Yeah. And while I was there, I also, I didn't just do fine arts. I also did a kind of like side study uh, with, I believe it's still called integrated media, but it was the beginning. Um, it was close to the very beginning. It was only like the second or third year, I think, of a kind of interdisciplinary master's program for New media, essentially. Yeah. New media, CalArts. And um, and that was interesting, too. That, that was another point in which I was like, uh, I was really being exposed to the kind of practices that I really had not accessed while I was at Oberlin. Like, um, like what would be one thing... Well, I mean, when, you know, when you look at, when you look at new media programs, there's always been an, a really interesting, not to say good, s- subtext and or um, sideline collaboration with corporate entities. Mm-hmm. It's just part of that world somehow. Yeah. Uh, so that was the first time that I saw people who were really interested in creating work for a place like a context like Seagraph. Right, right, right. You know, um, and you were there, weren't you there also when Michael Asher was there? Oh, yeah, I was his TA. Oh, okay. Yeah, cheers. Uh, so, I mean, I was, I was well read. You can't come out of like hippie Harvard without being able to, like, you know, be the TA for the resident Marxist. Yeah. Right. So, um, but yeah, so in any case, yeah, I was there when Michael Asher was there. We um, studied quite, I studied quite closely with him. It was amazing. I believe Charles Gaines is still there, worked really closely with him, worked really closely with Lane Relier, uh, who's now at Northwestern. And um, it's it's interesting. It's There's some people who've stayed the course, but uh, the other person that I TA'd for was like Martin Curcells, you know, mm-hmm. who's over at Yale now. And so it's like, so we've all kind of grown up proportionally together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So both 
who were students and faculty at the same time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and then after that, um, it seemed like you did a lot of residency hopping. I was just, I mean, you hit all the ones that I have never got into. (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Academy Schloss. Uh, I, I think I applied to Paul Clay like three years ago and then I was doing other stuff after, but yeah. Oh, the summer Academy. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think the thing is, one could be very disparaging about these things and say it's an inside game. You know what I mean? Where if you get into one, the others kind of line up. Yeah. Um, and I, I hate to say that, but I, I wouldn't, it's a privilege to get one, but the privilege also uh, attends itself to a whole system. Of course, it sounds so obvious when I say it, but they're all blocked together, you know? Mm-hmm. Um so I certainly probably I certainly wouldn't have gotten into Shala Solitude if I hadn't done ateliers. I probably wouldn't have gotten into ateliers if I hadn't gone to CalArts mm. um, and then worked with the people that I did after getting out of CalArts. Yeah, you know. Uh, so they all just kind of bounce mm-hmm. one to the other. Unfortunately, I would say. Um, how how was that experience being in Europe? I mean especially since like you work a lot with it seemed that the, it seemed like you were working a lot with like other asian women and i assume when you went to europe that entire community was shifted and changed or maybe not oh well <laughs> it was tough but i i also i also think that the beginning of the toughness um was being actually at cal arts i mean even though there were really amazing people. I didn't, I didn't have a similar kind of cohort that I had on the East Mm -hmm. coast. People arrived from all over the place already formed with very different artistic Mm -hmm. um, trajectories than me. Um, So, so it was already difficult Um, and a much more, a much smaller context, let's say that. Yeah. Um, so luck of the draw or uh, systematic patterns in the art world at a particular period of time, LA, West Coast, I don't know. So in any case, yeah. So at some point uh, going to Europe didn't seem like it would be more alienating. <laughs> Let's say that. <laughs> um, it was, you know, it, I don't know. Uh, I was in Amsterdam as long as I was in grad school. Yeah. Uh, and um, so t- two years in Amsterdam is a long time. And it was interesting to, as you know, be an Asian American in Europe. Um, whose relationship to Asia, depending on where you are, is very, very different than what you understand. It's historical and economic vectors are totally different. It's assumptions about who you are as Asians, totally different. Particularly, I can say that like as a particular um, historical wave, I'm part of the um, 70s brainwave. My parents showed up for grad school, their government, you know, the Taiwanese government helps us help subsidize them. And um, perhaps a more kind of, um, there were other narratives that were more dominant in, in the Netherlands, which had to do with their colonization of Indonesia. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right? 
and uh, some working class, but very minor uh, in relationship to Turkish and Moroccan uh, migrant workers, but some Chinese migrant workers as well. And then, and this was before the significantly huge waves of, um, let's say, Chinese art students had shown up. In Amsterdam. In Amsterdam, oh, okay. in Berlin, as yeah. you saw as yeah. well, mm-hmm. right? So um, everywhere. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It was before that, right? Um, yeah. So I can it was an it was an interesting time to be there. I think that there have been an awful lot of things being said about the kinds of invisibility that American BIPOC artists or non artists can experience when they're in Europe, and coming at that from a kind of Asian perspective, that was really, it was interesting because of course what, what I'm evoking in this kind of colonial and uh, guest worker program um, is that um, Asians were seen as quite poor, right? mm-hmm. or not privileged in ways that they are seen as perhaps rightly or wrongly in the U S and at the same time, I totally eluded some of the other things that were happening with some of my other expat friends, because of course you fall into these expat mm-hmm. circles, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that um, they would never assume that I could speak English. So it was like, it was like I also didn't exist in an, any kind of known quantities, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of like, oh, like, uh, and people didn't stare at me because, I, of course, they'd seen enough Asians. Like, that's not yeah. the problem. But they, they were just like, didn't know where I was coming from. Yeah. They, they didn't make any assumptions. So I would just go to the market and they'd just speak Dutch to me because they had no idea what to do. <laughs> they, had no, they, they, they couldn't even do the racist konnichiwa. Oh, thing. Yeah. no. <laughs> oh, they just didn't because there wasn't enough contact, really. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so they would just be like, such, 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 such. And I'd be like, thanks, I guess. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then I would be, you know, experience um, condemnation, not for being Asian, but not knowing Dutch. Mm. So, so that was interesting. So occupying a kind of generalized outsider status without any kind of specificities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Except for one that was so long ago, a kind of colonial relationship that, you know, it it couldn't be constituted um, contemporaneously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And after all your residencies, did you return back to New York? After Amsterdam, I pretty much went to New York. Yeah. Um, And then I continued on with my residencies, but um, I had a base in New York up until fairly recently, basically from 2000, late 2005 through to now-ish. Still. Oh, really? Yeah, I was had a place in New York. Uh, my partner was there, you know, so uh, kept one foot there. And, but, I, I, you know, it was interesting being in L.A. for four years, two years in grad school, two years out, uh-huh. um, and then being in Amsterdam for two years. And finally going back to New York. After those years, it was a relief. It felt like home. It was yeah. nice. I always found LA alienating. I was there for two years. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. Very alienated. Why alienating for you, though? Where were you? I think that that's the first. What's the I was, context? I was in K-Town. But I was, I was there, um, like, after, after college, I, I taught uh, SAT in Korea for two years. And then I moved to LA because I was, like, SAT is sort of like a dead-end job I still didn't know I wanted to do art and I was like I'll just go to LA see what happens and 
I just found meeting people there hard because of the just the geographic distance. It just made finding a community for me just a little more difficult. Um, there's yeah. the whole idea like, you know, you go to L.A. to live the life how you want it, right, in your own space. And I, so I always found, I think I came at it from like a normal city's perspective, which is you go out, meet people, and everyone's in cro- close proximity. And I don't think mentally I was ready or even knew how to deal with it. I think now if I went back, I probably would maybe have an easier time. I don't know. I still hear people going there and being like, it's so hard to meet and find a community there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very clannish. Um, and it's particularly, I don't know if you noticed this in the art world there, and maybe it's changed, but I, I doubt it. It's very oriented around school, yeah. the schools, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. there's like the group of people who went to USC. There's the UCLA mm-hmm. crew. Yeah. There is the CalArts crew. There is increasingly less the Art Center crew. <laughs> Not to diss Art Center, <laughs> but, you know, it's it's it, indeed. Um, it's geographically um, uh, difficult, um, and it sets the tone. It creates the entire framework for uh, one's uh, social and professional life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I kind of knew that when I was uh, stepping into it, there was a kind of art forum right when I was uh, applying to grad schools. I, I swear it did not play into my, <laughs> where I applied to school, yeah. but there was a big um, uh, art forum article writer uh, at that same time yeah. uh, which was talking about all the LA schools and how they were like a thing or whatever and yeah. they're kind of like you know kind of crappy art, art magazine speak and um and you could you could kind of actually read it between the lines oh really like yeah uh, people were uh, very much framed and social groups uh hangout groups were framed according to who went to which school mm. and that that persisted right it wasn't it wasn't ever the art scene w- was spoken about primarily in school terms yeah yeah uh which already should have given me the clue but when i got to la i was like oh Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's what they were trying to tell us. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um. So yes, of course, I'm not surprised. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Yeah. I could have told you if yeah, I knew yeah. you then. Yeah. If I knew, if if I was like, so... <laughs> like, like, watch out, you're gonna be really lonely. No yeah. one's gonna know you. Yeah. Where did you live in LA or Valencia? I showed up. I was told as a prospect student that I would be allowed that people just lived in their studios. What? At CalArts. <laughs> um, which, you know, if you look at the studios at CalArts, you can see why it's like a little village. Yeah, yeah. You know, but um, but that was not true, particularly not at the beginning of your first year of grad school. Um, so I got a place with some other people, um, not CalArts people, in Los Feliz, which... Oh, nice. Back then, you could afford to yeah, kind of yeah. live in Los Angeles with yeah. some roommates. It wasn't yeah. a big deal. Yeah. And then um, I did live, I lived in my studio, kind of, in my studio. Second year. Uh, and then uh, after that, I lived uh, for two years in Chinatown. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah. It was great. Uh, and it was around the same time that galleries had already popped up um, in Chinatown, uh, but the whole kind of crazy models party scene hadn't quite started up yet. So mm. it was a really nice time to be there. Lots of hanging out happening, yeah. but really low key and not overly like uh, mediatized. Yeah. 
now it's different. I, I visited, I think, three years ago, and like it felt even after I left and came back just to visit a friend, it felt like a different place. Yeah, it's um, it's been mildly deserted. Yeah, which is sad. It's really sad. Yeah. So I mean, and one thing I'm just kind of tying going backwards. I guess when I looked at your videos, there's like a placelessness to them. Like you can't really place where the videos exist, which I kind of liked. Hmm. Tell me more about that. What do you mean? Like they could have been fil- like a lot of them were filmed either in studios, in which case it could have been anywhere, or when they were outside, oh. they they were like in the woods, but like a sort of nondescript woods. You'd have to like read the the description to kind of like figure out. Sometimes you kind of place the the location, but sometimes you didn't. And I was just curious, like was that sort of meant to be, and sort of you're creating your own worlds. Um, and then how difficult was it to have get these sort of places while in New York? Like, did you film a lot in New York? Or did you, like, go on these residencies specifically to make work and then you went back to New York as a sort of home base? Um, well, I don't know. I think that um, it's it's hard to summarize a position. I think that each piece is probably different. I think that I can say, though, that... Um, place is often not the primary concern or a kind of a geographic cultural locatability um, is not the primary concern. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, um, I usually don't build work off of the histories of a particular place, but perhaps something that's uh, maybe something that is interesting coming out of that though, is that I am interested in the ways in which stories become abandoned or Mm. stories kind of narratives kind of die um, or ideas kind of die where do they go how they can they be resuscitated and so so there's that so I would be more um, inclined to like let's shoot to shoot in a place that is dead in some ways Um, so abandoned or um, or underpopulated or or uh, so, uh, and then once you start talking about a place that's underpopulated or semi-abandoned, um, then there always is a kind of non-specificity about it um, yeah. because it's missing the important elements that make it a living place, which are people. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so uh, but it but yeah, but it and that generality stems if if I can say this, it stems from a specificity. Do you tend to write your scripts first before you film or do you film or does it kind of depend back on Back and forth and back and yeah. forth. Yeah. And then I also noticed, I was curious, how did you end up getting into like 3D, having 3D, uh, how, do, how do you decide what elements are 3D? I mean, because I think you use it in really interesting ways, but I was curious how you decide because I... I, I don't use 3D too much and I have a hard time trying to figure out that for myself. So, Well, I always use a kind of cruddy. <laughs> I know that. It's not like these beautiful Maya rendered universes. Like that's super not for me. But the later ones, it looks, I mean, I, th- I thought like the, you know, the pink slime shift and then the, the, the accompanying videos, those have gotten to the point where. Vaguely believable. Vaguely, okay. Um, I think that um, I was always interested in animation. Um, It's a nice way to kind of move between my interests in graphics, 
particularly, I hate to say painterly graphics, but graphics of 2D frames, right? Mm. Um, and move that into a kind of AV space. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's just a kind of bridge for me. And I definitely started with Flash. Really? Yeah, of course. <laughs> That's like a lot of artists. It's just like started with Flash, moves yeah, yeah. and little things around. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so Flash, um, but I there back to grad school, there was when I was in that... Um, well, Disney you know, is there, or, right? Well, yeah, but you never see those guys. It's not like you need them. They're always in their like little sweaty hole. You know, all those kind of animation students, like you never meet them because they're just working in the animation studio. So, uh, no, I think even before that, though, I was really interested in like what was happening online, particularly this one platform, Adaweb. Mm-hmm. Um, which was uh, that kind of early like uh, net art thing mm-hmm. um, for which there is an archive, I believe, um, that I think is hosted by Rhizome. But in any case, so that was already on my horizon. And then so uh, at CalArts, um, as part of my kind of uh, participation in the new media um, program there, I did start working with Flash, but I also in tandem started working with really baseline uh, programming. Mm-hmm. So uh, the kind of programming that on old Macs, right, it uh, pops up Windows, does all those graphics, like the whole yeah. thing, commandeers the system. Mm-hmm. If one were to pursue it further, one could do all sorts of nefarious things. But I was just more interested in like the graphic um, possibilities there. Um, and so... Uh, and then had always kind of continued working around Flash, and there was definitely a period of time that I was really interested in more kind of abstract anime. And so that was definitely a thing around that time too. Did you watch anime? Uh, not too much. Mm-hmm. Not too much. Because I also had to say, like, it was really hard to access that stuff. Like, it mm, didn't. That's true. There's no, there's like, it wasn't like the internet as we but know I actually, it. I, tried to think, I grew up, so I, I partially grew up in New York City before, and yeah. then I moved to New Hampshire in high school. Yeah. And I would always rent like, uh, anime stuff from Chinatown. I remember you could yeah. always rent stuff. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, you had to be you had to be in proximity to some kind of like Chinatown or yeah. like a little Tokyo or yeah, whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. Like you had to actually be able to go into a store. Yeah. Um so yeah, also I didn't really like the stories. <laughs> but so, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I like the look of that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um and this idea of like this idea of a kind of a, a kind of a graphic approach to grown-up issues and mm. or graphic approach to call like society scaled traumas was very interesting to mm-hmm. me. Right. Um, and so so kind of working through those ideas, of course, I was just like, you know, it just like kept an eye on uh, what at that point in time like um, became I don't know what's the word for this kind of aesthetic, but that really kind of like flat, cute aesthetic uh that was like particularly part of that early flash based um and graphic design world of that time like the really early aughts right um so it was really coming out of that kind of just moment in time and then as i continued working with flash of course then 3d comes up um, as a kind of viable possibility given normal consumer goods yeah yeah um, and then, so it just made sense to move there. And then I really like working with Blender. Really? That's <laughs> um, yeah, my favorite. And it just, it's like a really, 
flexible space. I, yeah. I know that it's used for games a lot, but it also just seems like a space because it's a open source platform. It's there's all sorts of weird stuff yeah. happening there, and it and it can get really glitched out really quickly, and it's all good. Yeah, you know. Um, so I'm I'm really I I super enjoy it. Uh, yeah, I mean I I I never really got into i remember i i took a animation a 3d animation class in college and then they're like yeah you're gonna spend the entire semester making like a 30 second video if that and then i was like okay this is not for me this is really not worth it <laughs> it's not worth the time <laughs> it's still not <laughs> it's still really not yeah but you know i don't know i mean it's that that could be a greater question in in general i think what is what are the actual time and labor yeah. imbalances for any of our mediums you know mm -hmm. uh, we watch all these cartoons on tv right or whatever stands in for tv media yeah 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 <laughs> um and it represents the blood sweat and tears of um so many hundreds to thousands yeah. of people and it's just all that labor is buried you yeah. just have no idea that's crazy yeah i think like what was it like the the people who like did the life of pi they won the oscars and then immediately folded because they they lost money in making it yeah yeah so. something is amiss <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's something needs to change we'll see um I'm curious, you know, you speak a lot about like, you know, talk about labor in particular in a lot of your works, the sort of this industrial model of labor. You know, this is always, I've always thought about this a lot, but like, how do you see your videos within that capitalistic model? Do you make videos as sort of some sort of resistance to that, given the difficulties of videos? I mean, I know videos exist in, in, in the art world, but I, they're definitely like one of the harder things to pick in terms of selling something. I don't know. I don't. I don't think that any um, any particular medium has any intrinsic resistances on a very general, general, mm -hmm. general <laughs> basis. But I do think that the economic, the framework for the economic consumption of moving image, let's say, in the art world, quote unquote, art world, art world has not been, still hasn't been really properly sorted out. I'm still waiting for somebody to create the uh, right platform or the right um, exchange frame. It just, it just hasn't been figured out. And yeah. I don't, I don't think that additions is a very satisfying <laughs> um, revolution to how to capitalize videos. You know, it's yeah. just, it's just a tough one. It's already, it was already awkward as it was in relationship to things like prints, you know, that could theoretically be created in infinite edition. Um, so it's already kind of awkward with that, that which can be replicated infinitely being um, artificially restricted. It, anyway, but then, but then not being able to really use cinematic kind of um, capitalization sort of frameworks is awkward too. So anyway, so, all that is to say, not really. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, just because there's a confusion, just because somebody hasn't figured it out yet doesn't mean that I, I am successfully launching any kind of resistance on that front. But I do uh, think that for myself, 
it's really important that people are able to see my work, which is why I try to um, make it available online always, and not necessarily at the highest resolution, but at in full. Um, because I think that this, um, one of the things that I found as an educator actually is that um, it's really hard to build a discourse around video art when the work is not viewable. Yeah. Um, and that's really a problem in terms of building a body of knowledge, in terms of creating a discourse to share with students who don't have access to these various platforms and and attempts at capitalizing video art. So, and I, I just find that really to be a shame. I do though make paintings. So, you know, if I want to make money and make the paintings, yeah. you know what I mean? That's not really what the videos are for, the videos. Um, and sometimes I often the work, the any money, which is not much, but any money that I make from the paintings usually go back into the videos. Yeah. Um, but I also want to say, too, it's not as if there aren't other capital streams. So it's like it's my work in video or less easily capitalized works that are more often than not more likely to receive funding, um, mm. like grants. So there, there's another kind of capital participation that it has. It's just not gallery sales. Yeah. But it's not to say that it isn't a privilege. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's I like know, I know what one, is, one is not more elegant than the other. Um, yeah. we, we have to be familiar enough with all that kind of the intensity of the dirtiness of the money that we deal with. It's no more elegant to sell to some, you know, shameless collector than it is to receive money from a foundation mm -hmm. built on shameless, you know, other activities in the past. So... Yeah. Uh, so 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 there's no there's nothing um, straight and and straightforward here. I think. Yeah, I agree. Yes, one of the last things I wanted to ask you about was sort of uh, one of the work that kind of stuck out a lot in terms of like maybe a shift was your your creation of the the red detachment of women. Mm. And I was curious how that came about because you we were just briefly talking about like you know, this sort of placelessness and how that's non-port. But then that piece for me was like a huge shift. A, it pointed directly back to maybe very concretely to, you know, your relationship to China, also in terms of history and place in yeah. a lot of different ways. So I was curious if you could talk about that shift. I think so there's like all these kind of movements um, and I've been working long enough that I don't hate myself for them. Like there's some, there's like decisions I made long ago and it's as if it was a different person. I know it wasn't a different person, but you know, it's long enough that I, I don't have to feel so sensitive about it. That's don't they say all your body regenerates every eight years? All your cells? Oh, that's super weird. I'm going to be thinking about that. Sorry, sorry. Um, sorry. They're like, don't worry about that wrinkle. Just work on the next set of face cells. Um, yeah, I don't. So I think that how it really happened was it wasn't it wasn't as if I was like time to embrace the motherland. You know, what I mean? like that was definitely not what the thinking was. It was more like at some point in Europe, I got very interested in the question of whiteness. Hmm. Right. 
um, which, you know, being located in Western Europe seemed pretty correct, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, so it was making work, one could generally say, was about critiquing and or trying to puzzle out exactly what whiteness was yeah. and it's, kind of, um, it's kind of interests and and such and and then at some point I got really interested in this idea of not whiteness per se but but it was an extension from that this uh, and this is before Trump of course the fantasy and when I came back to the U.S. it took me a while of kind of a, Reacclimating, and then I spent some time in the Midwest, and I got really interested in that fantasy of a lost America. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, of course, like totally organically coming out of fascination <laughs> with whiteness, and in particular, it as the company town and the factory town as a kind of originary mythology that was more a kind of a unicorn it was a an object of a fixation a desire fixation um, without any feasible resolution no matter how much tax policy changes various tariffs all those kind of things it's just impossible to bring I would say impossible to bring industrial production back to the U.S., not only because of a kind of brain drain or a kind of uh, technical skills loss after so many decades, but also we literally don't have the equipment anymore. You'd have to build it up from nothing, and Mm -hmm. I don't think we're up for that. So I got really interested in that, making work around that, really stepping into this idea of labor, not as um, economic numbers, but as something um, more deeply embedded in the psyche, more deeply um, wrapped in and around and through with desire of various sorts. And then, of course, after working on labor and industrial fantasies, you know, all roads lead to China. Have you seen American Factory? What's that? Have you seen American Factory on Netflix? I need to see yeah. it. I will. I was thinking I about know. that the entire time. I've been very, 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 uh, very uh, busy watching like dating reality shows. <laughs> <laughs> so I will eventually get to American Factory. I know. I will. I promise. But um, but anyway, so yeah, all roads lead to China. China, uh, obviously, all roads lead to China. And now China is using those roads to come back here, mm-hmm. you know, and using those fallow factories to kind of create something for themselves, right? Because, of course, the building still exists. Some of the equipment is still there. But often, most of our workers don't know how to use them. Even if the, fa- if the, the equipment is still there, they have no idea how to use it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, anyway, so... That's how that happened. <laughs> That's how it happened. And of course, in the background, um, there were some other unresolved things that I hadn't really gotten to think about uh, for a good long time, uh, which had to do with um, back to some of these other ideas that I had around like cultural rupture um, and trauma and sort of disconnection of histories, histories dying and not being resuscitated, having no continuity, um, which I'm sure has everything to do with like uh, being part of a kind of general diasporic sort of community, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So, but, but it made sense as a kind of continuation of other interests 
But as a turn, it also marked a place for me to yeah address some of those other things that I hadn't hadn't really made space for. Yeah, not ever, but for a while. Yeah. Did uh, one thing when I was looking at that, I was curious who your who your audience was, and that in the sense that like I mean, partially I'm curious what the reception was of that piece was in China, if but also like from an American perspective, I I was like. Maybe is only speaking to Chinese Americans. I don't know. I was curious what how, what you were imagining. Maybe it was for yourself. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we we always have to make work centered from ourselves, but it's not for ourselves. God, like, no. I mean, more maybe. It, I mean, it's also for us. <laughs> it's also to make the work that we wish existed in the yeah, world and that course. we want to see and listen to. Yeah, yeah. That's of course. But um, no, I, you know, I always, I, that was always the, the ethical pickle, particularly as I was like conceptualizing that work or I guess groupings of work. I was really curious about it. And then I started showing Indonesia and it was fine. Yeah. I don't know. It was interesting. Um, so for instance, like the Red Detachment of Women as a kind of um, dance performance, I did a new version of that, but not changed that much. Um, a new version for that in Guangzhou at like the Times Museum in Guangzhou, oh, yeah. like last summer. And that's pretty Chinese. I was there in the fall. <laughs> yeah, so I must have yeah. missed it. I must have missed it. Yeah. yeah, you just missed it. The show was still up. Uh, and then we did some performances. We did a performance in August because that's how much they had budget for was one. <laughs> like uh, the, like the live the live performance with all the dancers. The live performance uh, with um, three dancers and the new costumes and. Uh, and I, oh, I just wanted to tell the yeah. listeners that the piece is um, based off a an old opera that Jen had, I guess, recontextualized into present day. Yeah, it's basically it's a dance piece that's basically a manual for best practices for pork slaughter, industrial pork slaughter. Using, sorry, using the music and pageant, certain uh, visual elements, choreography, and uh, music from the original Red Detachment of Women, uh, which was one of, yes, the model operas, Mao's, uh, Madame Mao's model operas, about an all female troupe, raise in hell, but actually more about the coming of age of a pleasant girl growing up well into a good soldier. So, right. So, uh, yeah, I did it again in Guangzhou and uh, there was a big audience. Oh, really? I liked it. <laughs> yeah, it's super weird. I was like, oh my God, am I going to get stoned? Like, what? Or am I going to get much worse? Like the worst, the worst idea is like, especially knowing a little bit about Chinese audiences is um, just this idea of like, why do you get to talk about this? This is our problem. It's not your problem. Mm -hmm. You're not Chinese. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Step up. Um, But uh, I didn't get that at all. Mm. It was very curious. Um, I think it was really great. I think that, but I, I think that, of course, different audiences are going to take away different elements. Um, and it was, uh, I did work hard to not be disrespectful, to not uh, set out any triggers, particularly for anybody in the audience who was a little bit older. Um, but some of the histories that are being indexed in this piece, the original as well as my redo, are really intense. Um, and that it wasn't that long ago. Um, and it's very violent, very traumatizing time. So it was really important for me to take that into account as a real issue. And so 
just as um, being somebody who um, hopes to respectfully share work internationally, it's just it's just a thing to keep in mind and to integrate as a process if need be. So, but I, I didn't change the piece that much really. Um, I took out some of the worst parts, which was like the kind of the paper cone hat, mm. uh, which is really quite traumatizing. But is in an American context, it makes the kind of events being pointed to a little bit more legible okay. because of the shock media that exists here that kind of defines the cultural revolution period we're there in some ways you can say that i didn't have to be as shocking because it's in a way even even in sublimated form it still exists yeah so you don't have to you can kind of cut out some of those things so, so yeah, so I was like that, that would just be just, you know, sticking my finger in somebody's eye. No, you, nobody needs to be that much of an asshole. So took that out. Um, and a couple other things, but not too much. Cleaned up the 3D animation a little bit. Uh, you know, reduced the amount of dancers just because the stage was smaller. Yeah. It was a different kind of space. Yeah. Um, not a proper, not, not a big, they did made a wonderful stage for us and set aside a lot of space, but it's not the same as like a dedicated theater. And, uh, and it was interesting that what the audience really wanted to talk about was, I don't know, industrialization, Hmm. Um, this kind of, the sort of the tragedy of the industrialized life, Hmm. you know, that cultural products, all music and dance be sublimated to this kind of efficiency standard somehow that really resonated and so so we had an amazing conversation about that and then of course like typical question there was one question where uh, somebody was like why save these old things you Hmm. know and i was like oh man did you answer (laughs) like wow (laughs) you know um but but not critical just more like why yeah yeah and of course, so both of those responses and those points of conversation, of course, um, spoke a lot to what at least the art audience in Guangzhou was thinking through. But it was a wonderful response. I couldn't have imagined a better one, actually. Yeah. And I was glad that they could find something authentic for themselves in it. Yeah. Uh, and then um, most the video related to that has shown... Oh, was part of my presentation at Singapore, which, you know, and, and it was the Singapore Biennial um, was very conscious of its relationship to China, but the work was okay. Yeah. <laughs> it was totally fine. So, so I don't know. I mean, I, it's not, I don't know. I think it, of course it helps, like it really helps that I am part of the diasporic loop, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not as if I don't have family currently in China. Yeah. And I always make it clear that that some of these dynamics happening in this work, and particularly Red Detachment, it's, it's not about me and the other. So many of those uh, historical conditions that created that cultural moment are the same historical cre- conditions that created me and created the kind of exodus that resulted in family stories like mine. Um, so it's all connected. 
it's not, I'm not an outsider to that story. Um, and that's what I try to keep in mind when I work with other narratives, more contemporary narratives in China. It's um, um, perhaps in different ways, but particularly as a kind of Asian American, part of a Chinese diaspora, and then living in the modern world, the kind of narratives that are being created in and around working people in China is our story. Um, So, um, and every object that we live with, almost nearly every object that we live with attests to that, that unity of story or that kind of interlockingness of the elements of our story. So I don't know. So I try to keep that in mind. Yeah. If that helps. No, it helps. Yeah, I mean, I always. I think I was. I was recently having a discussion with someone. They were like, "Yeah, like the world's complicated, you know, with you know all these different ideas of colonialism and politics and nationalism." But after all that, usually what's left is just some story, you know, in the end. And I, th- I thought that was like a really nice way to think about it, right? Like, you know, after this is all passed, we're just left with a story. That's an interesting way to think about it. I don't know. I I think like, but I, but I also, it's, it's important. It's also important. I try to remember that it's important not to oversimplify things too. I know that that's not what you mean, of course, but I think with every narrative, there's multiple counter narratives. Um, So it's actually hard to consolidate it into a single story or for any one level of meaning for a single person there's all these other multiple meanings are cross-purpose mm-hmm. so it's it's actually yeah it's it's hard it's hard it's also hard to sum it up i mean then that's the reason why it's important to kind of address these things in art because you can actually present counter narratives at the same time as dominant narratives and they don't contradict each other so much as create complexity and i would be hard put to think of any other area of human endeavor that actually gives room for that kind of play so yeah i think that'd be a good place to end cool um do you want to do any plugs or anything that i missed that you would want to talk about um I don't know. I have a new piece that I'm still working on, Gold Loop, Pink Slime. It's it's still part of the Pink Slime Caesar shipping, but it's called Gold Loop. I did have a show, a solo show on that this summer in Copenhagen. Oh, nice. Um, but it's not done yet. It's still not done. Wait, it's happening like now summer or next summer? It just happened. Oh, oh okay. And uh, it'll be playing as part of a series of video artworks projected on the Brooklyn Bridge. Oh, okay. Soon. Uh, there's some stuff with some medieval uh, Italian church. <laughs> Sorry, that's not very specific. Uh, uh, it'll also be showing in some episodic, uh, somewhat finished form uh, with UCSD at the Calit 2 lab. Um, this is this, th- this current piece you just made. That I'm still working on. 
Um, pink slime sees a shift gold loop. It generally kind of vaguely has to do with e-waste recycling of gold. Hmm. So that's showing in UCSD I, I, virtually now. We've been talking for a while, but obviously COVID. So yeah. I'll be having a um, virtual solo show early October, December, mm-hmm. end of the year. Yeah. Um, and some other stuff. And more stuff. Okay. But I suppose the thing to plug is my website. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and amongst all this, uh, genlu.info. Don't go to genlu.com. I mean, do go. There's a very sweet <laughs> young artist called Genlu, who's not me, who does robotics, I believe, robotics and knitting. I know her. Oh, do you know I her? Know her? Yeah. I actually sent her an email once being like, have you suggest, have you ever considered a middle name or something or a middle initial? No response. And I was like, it's just going to cause pain for both of us. But you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You can be a same name person. That's cool. Yeah. Tell her I say hi. She can do whatever she wants with her middle name. I don't care. It's okay. fine. Or lack thereof. I would and let her know that if I had a middle name, I would totally use it, but I don't. I was not born. I was not given one. Oh, you don't have a Chinese name? name? I have a Chinese name, of course. But yeah. you, you wouldn't you wouldn't consider that your middle name or I'm old now. I can't change. Oh. I'm old. So <laughs> you're not that old. <laughs> older <laughs> anyway no it's a no it's it's hard to change your name then you have to change everything else i changed i changed my name actually did you i went i i went by my english name christopher until i went to grad school so i changed it late i changed that 27 yeah that's pretty late but it's not the same as if one is in one's 40s so i think that it's the same amount of work after 18 no, because once you start showing, oh, it's really true. a problem. That's true. That's true. That's really a problem. And so people are like, where have you been? You haven't existed. You didn't exist before this moment. <laughs> New name person, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, also, I don't know. My name is, my name in Chinese is really cheesy. So I don't want to use it. I don't know. It's lovely. But it's really cheesy. You know, I thought my name was cheesy when I was in high school. And then, I don't know, at some point I was just like, you know, I don't, it kind of grew on me. But Mine means, mine means likes the truth. Likes the truth. Lou. Yeah, it's just like, I can't do that. (laughs) Everyone, everyone who actually knows the Chinese would be like, oh, God, did you make that? So you're you're more embarrassed from knowing the Chinese as opposed to Americans pronouncing it. I'm embarrassed about the the Chinese. Uh, okay. It's a lovely name, but it's kind of also super cheesy. Yeah, it's like it's being called like justice. You know, it's like you can't. I don't want to do that. I don't know. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Jen, so much. Well, good luck. Um, send me through. Send me stuff through about your work. I'd love yeah, to see. totally. I will do. All okay, right. Good. good. Okay. Cool. Well, it was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, I can meet you in real you life sometime um, soon, either in Asia or in Bennington. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. I'll let you know if I come to China and let me know if you cross the border. Yeah. 
Yeah, I will. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, good luck. Bye. Good luck with this semester. Bye. Bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Z1 Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.